I'm Julie Coleman. Good morning, everybody. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and uh, we are continuing in our series in Mark, and we'll be looking at the hemorrhaging woman and the Jairus' daughter, two stories together. So in order to open our session to get you thinking a little bit, I have a short little movie clip that we're going to play for you um, about a guy. His name is Albert. He's played by Kevin James. He's a guy who dearly wants to date his beautiful client of his. So he calls upon this professional matchmaker named Hitch, played by Will Smith, who just before meeting Albert for the first time is secretly observing him from a distance. And here's what happens. My business is 100% referral and thus far untraceable. And if there's one thing I've learned when you orchestrate, coordinate, and otherwise mess with fate, it's best to fly under the radar. hopeless, right? You wonder how he's going to get the girl, but rest assured he does at the end. Spoiler alert. But um, it's funny on screen when somebody's hopeless. Not so funny in real life. <laughs> Hopelessness is a terrible thing. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have. Um, we've probably all felt it one time or another. Maybe it's financial stress that you can't see your way out of. It might be a child that challenges you at every turn. It seems like he's out to destroy himself. <clears throat> you know, Steve and I raised four children, and we used to lay in bed at night when they were all in middle school and say, there's four of them. Surely one of them will turn out all right. <laughs> Very challenging. Uh, maybe your hopelessness is due to a failure at work. Maybe you got fired, or maybe something you did tarnished your reputation at work, or he robbed you of your confidence. Or here's a big one, failed relationship. You know, left you hurting to the point of despair, wondering if anybody would ever love you again. Well, today we're going to continue in Mark, and we're going to be looking, uh, we call the series The Big Reveal, because Mark is showing the world, this is the first gospel written, the first written proclamation of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at two stories that Mark intertwines in chapter 5 today, and we're going to see two situations of utter hopelessness, and then find hope for the times when all seems lost. So let's go ahead and read Mark. It's a little bit long, but it'll go fast. <laughs> when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he straight stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Z J excuse me, Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had actually grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I can just touch his garments... I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. 
Immediately Jesus, perceiving him in himself that the power preceding him from him had gone forth, turned around the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came to him from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people were loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said, Talitha, come. Which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Well, let's ask God to help us through this passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its richness. I thank you for the great truths it contains. I thank you how it reveals you to us. And we just ask, Lord, as we look at these two stories, that you would, with your Holy Spirit, impress on our hearts the truth you'd wish us to hear, the ways that we can know you better, the ways that we can love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm hoping now that you'll remember something I taught way back in March, probably a big order, but we looked at a liter literary uh, technique that Mark uses quite frequently in his book called sandwiching. Remember that? So it starts with one account, A, then it gets interrupted by account B, and then finishes with finishing up account A. So it's the sandwich effect. And usually the, the middle part kind of informs how we're supposed to view the whole thing. So it's, it's kind of like the, the gem in the center that we're supposed to really look at. <clears throat> so we saw it in chapter 3 when Jesus' family appeared on the scene. Then he goes to a scene with the Pharisees, and, and they're accusing him of being from Satan. And then it goes back to his family again, A-B-A. And we saw it again in chapter 4 when Jesus told the parable of the sower. A was the parable, B was the quote from Isaiah, and C was the uh, meaning of the parable. A-B-A. So we have two stories here then. A is Jairus and his daughter, and B is the interruption of the woman with the hemorrhage. And then we go back to A continuing concluding with Jairus' daughter. So we're going to take a look at both of them <clears throat> and then see how they work together to teach us about God's truth from these passages. So Mark began with the story of Jairus' daughter. Now, there's something important before we even start here. 
Because in the passage just before this one, it might be a little confusing because we switched the order uh, last week, but in the passage just before this one, Jesus is on the other side of the Galilee, remember? And he's at the place of um, Gerasene, and he met a demoniac there. And so he, he, he cured him of that, sent the demons into the pigs, if you remember, and who drowned themselves, and then the people said, uh, we want you to leave. <laughs> We're scared. And so Jesus got back in the boat and went back home, um, or back to where he'd come from. So it's kind of interesting to look at the past in that because um, if you remember, the townspeople were terrified of what they'd seen. They had begged Jesus to leave, but still, you get the feeling when you read that passage that he had come to rescue that one guy. Keep that in your head. So Jesus and his disciples return, but they can barely get out of the boat, and this crowd is all of a sudden uh, forming around them. And you have to wonder, how did they know he was coming? Well, I have a theory, but this is absolute conjecture. There were a lot of boats with them, it tells us in uh, 436. And I'm wondering if they didn't get there first and announce to everyone that he was returning. Just a thought, but they knew anyway, somehow, and uh, they showed up. (laughs) So as he gets off the boat, one of those who approached him was a man named Jairus. He was a leader in that town. He was called the ruler of the synagogue. Now, it's a title that's found throughout uh, first century, the Mediterranean world, Um, And he would have been responsible for building maintenance of the synagogue, for procuring the scrolls for when they did the scripture reading, for arranging the Sabbath worship service, all the things, all the parts of that, um, because lay leaders were the ones who took part in all of that. Um, He would uh, have somebody assigned to read the scripture, he'd assign somebody to do the prayers, and assigned actually the preacher. So all of those things were up to him. He was pretty much running the program. And his daughter was very ill. He uses, Mark uses a, um, a Greek colloquialism, at death's door. That's what it means. You know? and, he, and he says, uh, he calls her my little girl. It's a term of endearment. She's only 12 years old. And Luke's account actually adds one more detail that Mark does not. She was an only child. So it was her, his only child, raised her for 12 years, and now she's at death's door. You think he was desperate? (laughs) He was respected, though. Being synagogue leader, it was the most prestigious job in town, of course, but it was still greatly respected. Um, And we can tell that because as he approaches Jesus, the crowds part and let him come right up and face-to-face with Jesus, the healer. And he actually feels he has enough clout to ask, ask Jesus to come to his home. So both of those things. So he was respected, but he was also desperate. His daughter's dying. Imagine the sense of urgency that must have been for him. You know, we had a, a, my second son had a terrible fever. uh, Went for about a day, and it was just, he started at 103 in the morning, and he kept climbing, kept climbing. And I I called the pediatrician two different times, and both times he kept saying, sponge him off, give him Tylenol, come see me Monday morning. It was a Sunday. Well, then I took his temperature, it was about 10.30 at night. He was 105.2. So I was like, goodbye, doctor. We're going to the emergency room. So Steve and I took our baby, went to the emergency room. They put us in a, a I don't know what you call that, booth or whatever, <laughs> curtained area, um, and then promptly ignored us. 
And I'm watching this baby getting more and more lethargic and feeling like his brain is going to fry if somebody doesn't do something, and they're ignoring us. So finally, I'm pacing back and forth. I'm yelling at Steve like he is, it's his fault. And finally, I said, heck with this. I went right out in the middle of that emergency room, and I said, won't somebody help us? My baby is dying. Well, we got some attention. Now, I look like a total fool. I know that. But you know what? When you're desperate, you do desperate things. And that's what I would do for my child. That's exactly what that man was doing for his daughter. He was desperate, absolutely desperate. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, did everything he could to get this guy to do, come and help his daughter. But here's the interesting thing. He believed that Jesus could heal her. Jesus never questioned and said, do you believe like he does for some other people? Nope. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And, uh, and, there's, uh, and then later on, um, oh, excuse me, then he says, please come lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. That's a request of faith. You don't ask that of somebody who can't do it. But they didn't get far as they walked down the path toward his house when they got interrupted. A woman with a hemorrhage. It's interrupting. You can imagine how hard it was for Jairus, who's thinking, okay, good, we're going, we're going. And then having this woman stop and everybody's this big commotion. Jesus turning around, looking at the crowd, and he's like, my daughter, right? So he's on pins and needles, probably wringing his hands, watching this thing take place. But this was another desperate woman. This was a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. It was a gynecological problem, but 12 years is a long time. If you lost that much blood, you would become anemic uh, and could barely function. Uh, I had a friend who had that problem when I was teaching, and uh, she was a teacher, and she told me that at some point she would come down to the teacher's lounge and like lay down between classes. She was so exhausted, she couldn't, sitting up was a problem for her. And she told me one time when she's laying on the couch and I was asking how she's doing, she said, you know, I can't even lift up a piece of chalk. It's painful. I'm so exhausted. Well, that woman felt like that for 12 years. Imagine that. Um, she would have had muscle cramping due to the lack of oxygen going to her muscles and organs. She would have had dizziness, fainting, fatigue, and any kind of physical exertion that she did, like, I don't know, walking out of the house, might have resulted in shortness of breath, rapid heartbeat, even chest pain. It would have been debilitating. And for years, she had gone to every doctor available. She was out of resources, looking for a cure. They had prescribed things, these, these expert doctors, like carry around an ostrich egg wrapped in a linen cloth or carry around the dung of a white female donkey. Not sure they still use those cures today. And they were ridiculously expensive because of the exotic things that um, they required for their treatment. And now she was out of money and she was out of ideas. Mark uses a word called mastix. It's a graphic Greek expression meaning whipped, scourged, or tormented. That was her condition. And she had no status. Unlike Jairus, uh, she had, this whole thing had interrupted not only her social but her spiritual life. Because you see, in Mosaic law, the people were warned, if someone touches human uncleanliness, he will be guilty. Her ailment made her unclean, perpetually unclean. She couldn't get rid of that. And contact with her would have made 
other people unclean as well. So those who knew about her ailment would likely have been avoiding her. No hugs, nobody touched her, nothing could be received or given to family or friends. And because she was unclean, she was actually banned from the synagogue. So I wonder, all that sad rejection, did she even think that God himself was rejecting her? She was an outcast. You'll notice that no crowd was parting for her. She had to eke her way in there and stick her hand out to somehow touch Jesus. Um, why? Why did she do that? Well, she believed that Jesus could heal her. Again, faith. There were some quasi-magical notions going on at that time in the first century that anything worn by somebody uh, would have, that had special powers, those powers would be transferred to you by their clothing. And she was desperate. Every other cure had failed her. And she knew that this was her only hope. And it was worth the shame and the fear to do it. So she manages to reach out and touch one of the tassels that are hanging off the corners of his prayer shawl. And what happened? Healed immediately. It says she felt it right away. Right away. I wouldn't uh, be surprised <laughs> I, that she actually felt power course through her. And so she stands there, stunned at what just happened. You know, we pray for healing all the time. And then we can hardly believe when God answers. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me telling the story, Melanie. But we experienced the healing not too long ago. We were at a Christian Writers Conference. And um, she was having terrible pain with her back. She'd injured it right before we left. And she was a trooper, hanging in there, sleeping on bad beds and sitting through class after class in agony. And finally, Wednesday night, she said, Mom, can we just leave a little early? It was going to be over at noon the next day. She said, I just, I can't sleep one more night on this mattress. And I said, yes. <laughs> Poor girl, yes. So we had our dinner, and we were about to leave, and I saw someone I knew very well, and I wanted to just run over and say goodbye to her. I explained. I said, you won't see us anymore. We're going to sneak out here a little early. And she said, why? And I said, well, Melanie has um, some back problems. She said, oh, do you want me to pray for Melanie? I said, yes, thank you. She goes, well, where is she? I was like, oh, now? Like... <laughs> Okay, so we went and got Melanie, and another woman came along that we knew, and we all sat in this little cluster of four people, and they started to pray. And um, they asked Melanie, what, you know, what is your, what's, what's going on in your life? So Melanie gave a brief history of the drama that's happened over the past couple of years, and she, and she said, and where is it on your back that you hurt? And she told her, and so Linda, my friend, put her hand on Melanie's back, and she started to pray. Now, at this point... I, you know, I knew nothing that was happening inside of Melanie. I just knew what the circumstances were, and I was pretty worried because what was going to happen when her back wasn't healed? And I just didn't want to discourage these sweet women for praying, but God doesn't do that. And so I thought, what am I going to do? And so I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to send mental signals to Melanie. Fake it! Fake it! But anyway, she finished praying, and she said to Melanie, how's your back feel? And Melanie said, Good. And I'm thinking, oh, good girl. Keep faking it. We'll be in the car in 10 minutes. And she said, well, what can you do that you haven't done before? And Melanie stood up, reached down and touched her toes, reached up. She said, oh, my goodness. And she looked straight at me and said, I'm healed. <laughs> and I thought, what? Really? It really happened. She felt it, too. That thing rushing through her when it happened. And the whole rest of the way home, 
we kept saying, did that really happen? It was just so phenomenal that it did. She'd been bent over in pain. She couldn't even lift a leg. And uh, now she was walking, you know, crooked the entire con uh, uh, conference. And now she was healed. You know, the woman was stunned like that too, the hemorrhaging woman. She felt it go through her. She realized she'd been cured. And she watched Jesus retreat. She, was, she couldn't even move. Then Jesus stops. He had felt that power leaving him. And he asked the crowd, who touched me? And now the disciples are probably rolling their eyes. Who touched you? There's this throng of people. Who didn't touch you, Jesus? But Jesus keeps looking. And so he keeps looking for who she is. With that brief touch, not even his body, but just touching his clothing, merely brushing that tassel, she was healed. But now that Jesus is looking at her, she's scared to come forward. And you know why? She was unclean. And she touched him, which would make him unclean. And she was very concerned about that. But you know what, Jesus? Not worried at all. Not one bit. He tells her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That healing was complete and it was immediate. You know, she'd already been healed of one affliction when she touched the tassel. But now, tassel, but Jesus is telling her, you're healed. I think he's talking about her faith. I think her belief in him has made her whole. I think it was a physical and a spiritual healing at that time. Okay, so we've got A and we just did B. Now we're going to go back to A again, okay? Uh, back to Jairus' daughter. Now, at that moment, while all these things are going on, I'm sure it was pretty amazing and the crowds were hushed, but Jairus is standing in the back going, come on, come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, right? And as soon as uh, Jesus turns around, they, a guy comes running from Jairus' house, probably one of his servants or maybe good friends, and he says, uh, don't be, he said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. And Jesus hears him, and he immediately says this, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Have faith, Jairus. Continue to trust me on this like you did at the beginning. So when they get to the house, the professional mourners have already arrived, and they're kicking up quite a racket, and they're weeping and wailing, and Jesus says to them, why are you making such a commotion? The child has not died but is only asleep. And what do they do? They laugh at him. But Jesus goes in, and, you know, a corpse is the most unclean thing of all. And here he goes. And what does he do? Takes her by the hand. Contaminates himself once again. And he tells her, get up. And all those washing are astounded to see her sit up immediately after being declared dead. And her healing is so complete, she's ready to eat food right away. And I don't know if you've ever had an illness that caused you not to want to eat for a while. It takes a while. You work your way up, right? Crackers, ginger ale, then you move on to toast, and finally you get to some real food. He told her, serve her a meal. Completely healed. So, what? How should the uh, stories, these two stories, affect our here and now? Because they do in a great way. Remember that sandwiching thing? We're going to compare them. A to B and, and A once again. So here's the similarity, some of them. I found more, but these are the ones that are going to suit our purposes for what I'm going to talk about today. So both of them, Jairus, 
both Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood, they were helpless. They were desperate, desperate for a cure, and they looked to Jesus in their desperation. Both were unclean, yet Jesus touched them. But instead of making Jesus unclean, he made them clean. There's a rebuke, a resistance for Jesus in both of these stories. The disciples rebuke him. What do you mean, who touched you, right? And the mourners rebuke Jesus for doubting the little girl's death. Jesus shows complete dominance in the situation. Neither of these ailments, not the issue of blood, not death, even phased him. He had complete confidence in the power of God. And what happens? Both receive a complete and an immediate healing. But the last thing is it's interesting that both Jairus and the woman were afraid. And the fear is being contrasted with what Jesus was looking for, and that's faith, trusting in him. So I looked at all of this and started getting kind of an idea that God was leading me in this. And then I started looking at the larger context, which is super, super important when you're looking at a passage. What came before? What's going to happen next? And this is what I found. I found two stories, two more stories. One was um, the uh, demon at the garrison. When he went across the sea, healed the demon, came back, right? That's the story just before it. And I started thinking about him. He was hopeless. He was sent out to live among the tombs. They've given up on him, and he was too dangerous even to be approached. I don't know what they did, left food like far away or something, but um, so they wouldn't go near him. And as much as the demons would have liked to contaminate him in his ministry, they had zero effect on Jesus. Didn't even flinch. And Jesus was rebuked by the townspeople for getting their herd of pigs to run into the water. The demons had asked to be sent to the herd of pigs. He spoke, the demons obeyed. So Jesus showed complete dominance over the powers of Satan. And it all happened in an instant. His healing, that man, was complete and immediate. They say he went and found him and he was in his right mind, just like that. And the townspeople were terrified. They could hardly wait to get Jesus out of there. It was a complete lack of belief. So then I went a little further back. So, well, where's, where's the beginning of all of these things? And I found one more story before the demoniac, and that was the story of the storm at sea when they got in the boat to go over to Gerasenes, right? And so the storm at sea, I started looking again. And what were the things that it might have had in common with these? Well, first of all, the disciples were hopeless. They thought they were going down. And they said, Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? That sounds hopeless to me. The storm didn't affect Jesus in the least. Actually, he slept through most of it, completely at peace with God's care, until they woke him up. When the disciples said, that was a rebuke when they were telling him, why are you sleeping? Get up, do something. Jesus showed complete dominance, not over demons, not over illness, not over death, but over the powers of nature. Total dominance, even a storm powerful enough to scare experienced fishermen on board. And the resolution was immediate. Three words he said. Hush, be still. And the wind and the waves instantly calmed. And having witnessed that miracle and seeing what happened with there, 
The disciples, Mark tells us, were very much afraid. Afraid. They were just starting to realize that what they were getting themselves into, because only God can calm a storm. And Jesus, right then, contrasts their fear with faith. Four stories in a row. Not one break in between. It goes story, 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 story. Nothing in between. Don't you think Mark is making a point here? Don't you think the Holy Spirit was making a point here when he put these stories in a row like this? I think he was. So I want you to look at this. I'm going to give you 30 seconds of silence. Look at these things, all the things that they had in common, and see if you can think of what was going on. What is Mark trying to tell us, the Holy Spirit trying to tell us? So just I'll give you 30 seconds. I hope you got something. Let me tell you what I found. I prayed over this long and hard because I could tell this was the answer to what I was supposed to say today. And this is what the Lord showed me. First of all, all three, four of those stories showed me that Jesus is very personal. Very personal. It's something I learned when I wrote my book on Jesus and women. He approached each woman according to exactly where they were and started from there and moved them forward. And I think in these incidents, how Jesus uh, traveled across Gentile territory for one single man. Uh, and he revealed himself in a storm to his beloved disciples on the way over. That man was living in graveyard with no hope at all. Then how he traveled back and out of a crowd, two individuals get ministered to. Uh, one, of course, is that desperate woman. And then he went to Jairus' home to heal his daughter. So there's four stories of wonderfully personal interaction between Jesus and the people that he loved. You know, when we think of God, we can be tempted to give him kind of human limitations. We think of him as a really great human sometimes, but still human. Sometimes I, w I wonder if he's not like a big CEO in heaven, busy answering phones and emails, trying to keep up with all the problems in the world. But in reality, he's something different. He's more like my friend Joanne Wenger. Some of you may know her. We worked together on, uh, at Annapolis Area Christian School on the variety show for many years, which had tons of little kids in it, which was one of the reasons I was there to help her you know, survive that. <laughs> and after, after every uh, uh, rehearsal, the little kids would line up, 10, 20 kids in line. Everybody wanted to ask Joanne a question. Now I'm walking through the line saying, hey, can I help you? No, I have to talk to Ms. Mrs. Wanger. And they wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> they wanted Joanne. <laughs> So we let it happen. And jo let me tell you what I saw in Joanne, which just absolutely, I'll never forget it. She would get down on one knee or squat down, and she'd look that child right in the eyes, right on their level. And she said, what, what, how can I help you? And they would tell her their issue, like, what time does rehearsal start tomorrow? Like, I couldn't answer that. But she was zeroed in on those kids. Oh, be here at 3.30 after church. Okay. And in doing that, she gave them such significance because she had been willing to do that for them. She looked them in the eye. She listened carefully to their concern. She'd always answer in kindness and patience. With all the commotion going on in the room around us, and believe me, there was plenty. We had like 70 kids in the show, and they were all loud. <laughs> but she focused on those kids like there was nobody else in the room. God is that kind of personal. 
He works with us on an individual basis, even while he's holding the universe together. And I got one more takeaway after my study this week. He is a God of hopeless causes. A God of hopeless causes. When all our resources are depleted, all other avenues are exhausted, with a word or a touch, he can resolve an issue in a moment. There's nothing he can't do. We may be afraid or hopeless, but he is not. So we need, like the two protagonists in today's passage, to throw ourselves at him in desperation, admitting our helplessness, ask him to work on our behalf or the behalf of others that you're concerned about. In doing so, we tap into an unbelievable power, the same power that calmed the sea, that rescued a demoniac, that healed a woman with a terrible infirmity and raised a little girl from the dead. That's the power we're talking about. That's what he can do. And what does he want from us out of all of that? His desire is for us to trust him, to believe, to have faith in who he is and in his amazing power as the Son of God. Well, we started with the movie clip, and in conclusion, I want to end with one. This one's more serious. Um, but I want to tell you about a man who was rescued from hopelessness by Jesus Christ. He was born in Puerto Rico uh, to parents who were Satan worshipers. His father was a satanic priest. His mother was a witch. He was abused in terrible ways in his childhood. But the worst of all was the one day that he recalls that his mother, while possessed by a demon, he said her eyes were orange and he knew she wasn't herself, she screamed at him, and this is what she said to this nine-year-old little boy. You are not my son. I never loved you. I cursed the day I brought you into this world. And she shoved that little boy out of the house. And he cried, and he cried. He actually tried to commit suicide, but his brother saw him and stopped. But at that moment, he swore he would never cry again. He ended up living in New York City because he was such a troubled youth, no surprise there. But he went to an older brother who was living in New York City and started running the streets with gangs. Eventually, he became the leader of the worst gang in New York. He was about as hopeless as you can imagine. His name was Nicky Cruz, by the way. So let's run that clip now. I was raised in a very abusive family that was very deeply involved in witchcraft. I became to hate my, my parents. I ran away. And because I was in trouble in Puerto Rico, it was very easy to come to New York. I was 15 years old, and that's when I began to roam in the street, and I began to go wild in the street. And that's when I met the Mamas, the gang, and I became one of the leaders. And we fought all the gangs, we fought the police. There was shower of bullet going from everywhere. I was close to that many times over in and out of jail. New York City was a jungle and the law of the jungle, you behave like an animal. And that's what I became. And I became very vicious and one of the most notorious, the most fearful gangs in New York City. In the front of my gang, I was immortal. The strong leader, but when I was alone, I was the most lonesome person that you ever met. The preacher by the name of Dave Wilkinson challenged the gangs in New York City. We never heard somebody talking loud about God like this. 
the closest that I went to church it was when I used to pass by and then I used to spit. I didn't believe in nothing. I started screaming, cursing, and say, shut up, there's no God. You're crazy. If you mention God again, you are dead, man. And that's when workers told me, Nikki, Jesus love you. For two weeks, I was so miserable trying to shake those, those words, Jesus love you. I mean, in every place, getting stoned, getting high, stealing, cheating, mugging people, Jesus love you, Jesus love you. Two weeks later, I went. I went to heal this guy because my friend took me, Israel. And I took about 75 guys for protection to heal a skinny guy. And there was 2,000 people and from the pulpit. He asked me, Nikki, you want me to pray for you? I say, no. And three minutes later, I was crying like a little baby. I fall into the arms of Christ and let him love me and kiss my pains away. That night, I changed my weapon for the Bible. I began to read the Bible and I began to know about Jesus. And I feel better today about who Nikki Cruz is because I know that without the help of the Holy Spirit, I would never commit myself. I accept the challenge to be the evangelist. I have spoke to over 40 million people. And my message there is that if Jesus changed Nikki Cruz, he can change you. Awesome story. It's uh, in the Cross and the Switchblade, which was a book that came out in the early 70s. Um, he has a full testimony online, which is just crazy amazing, really great. But when Jesus spoke into Nikki's life that day, everything changed. Because he's the God of hopeless causes. With a word, with a touch, he brings complete healing and change in all he wants from us, our trust. Ephesians tells us that the power that works in us is the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. He can take your dead circumstances and bring life to the hopeless. So I leave you with one question. Are you willing to trust him? But what makes you hopeless? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God of the hopeless, that nothing is beyond you in your healing powers and how you can bring life into death. Help us, God, to trust in you for all of those things that just seem like there's just no good answer. When we're out of our own resources and feeling helpless and desperate and alone, we know that you are with us, you are walking with us, you are giving us a supportive arm around our shoulders, and you are bringing us through it. And you want to show us your healing power. So we ask God for those things. We ask for anybody in this room, Lord, who's feeling hopeless right now, that you would minister to them with your Holy Spirit and help them to understand how much you love them and how powerful you will be in their lives. We just thank you, God, for all of this. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.